I have received a number of questions. I appreciate your patience as I shuffle through these and uh, attempt to be uh, careful in dealing with your particular question and the way you want it dealt with. Where did the minus 180 degree mass of air come from and when did it come with relation to the flood? Our point is that from the creation of the world until the flood, Genesis says there was a vapor canopy. There was a vast amount of water in the upper stratosphere that provided an even temperatured planet through the greenhouse effect that I'm sure you're familiar with, which allows solar radiation to pass through, like through glass in a greenhouse, but then traps the uh, long-range heat radiation. Now, when the vapor canopy collapsed, it provided one of the basic sources of the mountain-covering floodwaters, and at the higher latitudes, where the sun's rays strike the earth at a glance, and indirectly, the earth's heat that escaped was never replaced. And therefore, that whole, those two sections of our planet were plunged into a permanent deep freeze uh, from which they have not yet totally emerged. That would have happened at the beginning of the flood in the higher latitudes, so that all the rain that fell in the higher latitudes fell in the form of snow that never melted and created enormous glaciers that moved down into North America and Europe and so on. All right? If the Gilgamesh epic degenerated because of oral tradition, uh, where did the Genesis story come from five to six hundred years later? That is, was there an oral tradition that the Genesis story is the end result of? Now, it is very easy to tell through literary criticism whether you have an end product of corrupted oral tradition or not. In fact, that's almost a law in the ancient Near East as we study uh, traditions as they pass through one generation after another. You can tell polytheistic, absurd, ridiculous elements come in. The Genesis account has no such elements. The only thing in the Genesis account that can be offensive is this, that there is a living personal God who can judge the world. But everything else in the Genesis account is absolutely rational, self-consistent, believable, purposeful, meaningful, within the context of the stated purpose of such a personal living God. Let me illustrate. The Gilgamesh epic says that the ark was a cube nine stories high and that it was built in one week. That is absurd. Such an ark could not have been built in a week and furthermore, it couldn't have floated. Now, what does Genesis say? It says that such an ark was built over 120 years, was loaded within a week, and was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 40 feet, 45 feet high, three decks, which is considered today absolutely ideal in proportion for a gigantic barge, a flat-bottomed, square-sided barge. It could never have been improved on in terms of design and stability for floating in water. It wasn't built to go anywhere, just to float. Its length, its width, its height were ideal proportionately, and its magnitude was adequate and appropriate for its God-intended purpose. And everything else in the flood account in terms of its chronology, the sequence of events, fits what you would expect to have happened under those conditions 
with the assumption that there is a God who could have planned such an event. Now, uh, if you're interested, in our book on the Genesis Flood, we spell out the careful details of that, and we, of course, can tell that the Genesis Flood account has not been garbled through oral tradition for that reason. There are no, there's no static in the message. Every verse, every word fits the context, fits the purpose, and is rationally uh, beautiful in its context, its development, its subdivision, and that cannot rationally be the end product of chance through garbled communication by oral tradition. What is wrong to you with the belief that God created all things but in a lower form, and then they evolved to what we know them today as part of his plan? Now, the problem with that is twofold. Number one, it is denied by Genesis, and it is impossible scientifically. You say, what do you mean it's impossible scientifically? Well, for reasons that we tried to explain last night in terms of the fossil record, the DNA code, the thermodynamic trend of all living systems, the uh, mutation problem, and so on, you just can't have evolution unless you have miracles. Now, miracles are not happening today to compensate for the downward drag of quality in living things by having them just miraculously get more complex. That's an anti-scientific concept of Earth history, and it is totally denied by Scripture. And a Christian theologian would say, therefore, here is my approach, that anything that is not only unbiblical but unscientific is probably wrong. And I would hope that an evolutionist would say that. Anything that is that is anti-scientific must be wrong. See? So evolution, remember, is not an empirical, obvious event or process at all. It remains to be proven. Uh, were all kinds of animals preserved in that ark? If yes, why were dinosaurs or mammoths not among them? Now, the Genesis record which we depend on at this point to give us the details of what really happened in such a flood, depicts two each of all air-breathing creatures that could be brought to the ark by walking were preserved in it, including the basic types of dinosaurs, which were small in size because of their, uh, of their comparative youth. The dinosaur fossils we find that are 80, 90 or 100 feet long are very, very old individuals. You understand, I'm sure, that dinosaurs were mostly reptiles, cold-blooded reptiles, which have the capacity that mammals don't have of becoming larger and larger, heavier and heavier, longer and longer, year after year, beyond their attainment of sexual maturity in laying eggs and reproducing. And therefore, the preservation of such creatures would not involve the preservation of the oldest, largest individuals, but smaller ones. And of course, we've seen that the ark, by its dimensions, was adequate in size for two each of every known air-breathing creature that's ever lived. In fact, the ark was so gigantic that it had a capacity of 1,400,000 cubic feet. And as you'll see in the film, with a capacity of 520 railroad boxcars, which is three times as much space as needed to preserve two each of all air-breathers in the world today, leaving two extra decks of the three decks for 
creatures that once lived that are now extinct. After the flood and the drastic change of climate, dinosaurs moved in two directions. One, for extinction. And number two, toward the tropics. And today, some dinosaurs still exist. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, you understand the dinosaur in Greek means terrifying lizard, dino, terrifying saurus lizard. And there are very terrifying lizards that fully qualify for the title dinosaur today. That is, the 15 to 30 foot crocodiles of the of Indonesian and uh, African environments and the Komodo dragon lizards of Indonesia that are not only uh, carnivorous and deadly, but poison-toothed and qualify beautifully for this description. The fact that we've discovered footprints of dinosaurs and human beings together in the Paluxy Riverbed of Texas, which we have photographed in our book on the Genesis Flood and which you could see in the documentary film Footprints in Stone, Brontosaurus footprints as big as bathtubs, bathtubs walking right down the riverbank, the riverbed, excuse me, and intermingled with them the giant three-toed flesh-eating Tyrannosaurus footprints, and with them perfectly preserved human footprints. Uh, this is a source of tremendous controversy today. How could dinosaurs and men live in the same world? Well, the Genesis record makes it clear that they did. And a book written before Genesis called Job describes two of these creatures as contemporaneous with ancient man, namely Behemoth and Leviathan, Job 40, Job 41. All nations in the world have a living memory of dinosaurs, which they call dragons. The Chinese dragon, the Irish and German and Scandinavian legends and many others from different parts of the world are a near perfect description of various types of dinosaurs that we know of today only in fossil formations. Question, how could the Epic of Gilgamesh have been written before the Bible? How do we date it? By dating the uh, written documents of that period. Now, of course, you don't date cuneiform tablets by radioactive methods. Uh, this is very unreliable. You date it by the comparative uh, changes in script, in language, and the comparative uh, records of surrounding nations that interacted with the nation that wrote these documents and built the cities that were destroyed that contain them. One of the most spe spectacular discoveries in recent months has been the Eblon tablets of Syria, where 15, I think 20, 25,000 cuneiform tablets dating 2,400 years BC, hundreds of years before the Gilgamesh epic, mention Sodom and Gomorrah which Genesis tells us existed until about 2000 BC, and other very fascinating relationships with the book of Genesis. Question, where does prehistoric man fit into the creation model? Uh, Cro-Magnon, Neanderthal, uh, and so on. We believe that, shall we call these people cavemen, were always a part of the human race in the peripheral non-productive areas of, uh, of the world, just as they are today. They are perfectly, truly, fully human, but uh, shoved out under the pressure of um, stronger civilizations and cultures into the peripheral areas of the world. Ape men have never existed. 
nor could ever exist. You cannot have a combination of DNA for ape and DNA for man in one individual. You can't have a giraffe man either, or a giant panda man, or a crocodile man. This is what we call science fiction. Cavemen, yes. The Bible describes cavemen, talks about them constantly. In Job chapter 30, verse 5, and in 1 Samuel chapter 26, and a couple of the Psalms. David wrote a couple of his Psalms when he was a caveman. I wonder if you knew that. Uh, Hebrews 11 says some of the greatest men who've ever lived were cavemen, living in caves of the earth, of whom the world was not worthy. Be more cavemen later than there are now, by the way, according to Isaiah 2 in Revelation 6, when the, the great global judgments that will end the world, the final apocalyptic catastrophes that the Bible predicts will happen on this planet, as in the days of the flood, will find men in total terror fleeing to caves of the earth to hide from, from God's judgment upon an earth that rejects his word and ignores his truth. This is biblical prediction. Someone asked the question, what religion are you? Well, I like to call myself a Bible-believing Christian. We're not so much interested in so-called denominational distinctions as to what extent do we really take God's word seriously? As a matter of fact, maybe you didn't know this, but that's how denominations got uh, their original names and uh, their their structures organizationally. Do you take God's word seriously? Do you take his word as being your guide for life? God promises you if you do, he will give you more truth, more light, more direction, more meaning, more purpose, more peace, joy, confidence that you fit into an eternal plan and purpose. You're not a product of chance. You have a life that God has planned for you to live from eternity that can never be fulfilled with ultimate apart from his guidebook, his instructions. How do you know God? One way, through Jesus Christ, his son, who died on a cross and paid the penalty of your sin and rose on the third day from the dead as a demonstration to the intelligent universe that a fantastic work of salvation was accomplished and finished forever. This book is centered, focused on that fact. And creation and the flood are just preparatory chapters that focus on Jesus Christ, the incarnate Savior and creator of the world. So, really, it is irrelevant to say to a person, of what religion are you? The real question is, how do you respond to God's word? How do you relate to his revelation? That's the question every one of us has to face in the presence of a book that confronts us every day we live. Can you estimate or have knowledge of how much plant material would have to be compacted to produce the presently known amounts of coal? Yes. We have an article written by a leading coal geologist in West Virginia in one of the creation quarterlies. And by the way, every one of you should be subscribing to two journals if you even have the slightest interest in these subjects. Number one, Acts and Facts Bulletin, free of charge, free subscription. There are hundreds of samples on the table. Just write to the address at San Diego. They'll put you on the mailing list. And these types of topics are dealt with every month by highly competent scientists. 
an expensive journal, the Creation Research Quarterly. We have copies of those on the table out there too. And in a recent issue of the Creation Quarterly, this coal geologist analyzed the amount of available coal in the world, estimated amount, and came to this conclusion, that if the world was covered with a dense jungle at the time of a universal flood, the amount of coal now existing would be equivalent to the amount of forest that that world could have contained at the time of the flood. That's something to ponder. And of course, the oil deposits have been a spectacular confirmation of catastrophism. Why? Because much oil, if not most, is, is organic in origin. And uh, the organic deposits of petroleum under tremendous pressure, capped by sedimentary caps, give evidence of recent catastrophism in destruction of billions of marine creatures whose body oils could never be absorbed by the water and trapped under sedimentary cover under stupendous pressure. As we drill into these, great geysers of pressured petroleum burst forth. If those wells have been there for more than five, ten thousand years, the pressure would long since have dissipated through cracks and the permeability of the superimposed layers, and there could be no pressure in them at all. This is one of the major discoveries in terms of a catastrophism model for Earth history. Before the Darwinian evolutionary theory became popular, what did the scientific community use as a model to explain the world system? Now this will surprise you. The greatest scientists in Great Britain and Europe, before the time of Darwin, all believed that the basic structure of this planet, fossils, sedimentary deposits, and so on, were best explained by the Genesis Flood. Now, we have documented and quoted from these men in our book, The Genesis Flood, if you're interested, but going back throughout the dawn of the scientific era, you will discover that the Bible was presupposed by leading scientists as being the basis for discovery. I have an outstanding volume, I didn't bring it in here, it's out in the car, by Stanley Yaki, J-A-K-I, showing that Christianity, so far from being a stumbling block in the progress of science, was the very atmosphere or frame of reference within which science could proceed in the Western world. And every other part of the world where a non-monotheistic, intelligible model of the universe was presented as a religious option to Christianity, science never got off the ground. In other words, science is encouraged by this presupposition that the universe is rational, that it is dependable, that laws that are true on Earth are true on Mars or Andromeda, that it is a universe, not a multiverse, and therefore that science and exploration can be rewarded by genuine discovery. But if you believe that the universe is meaningless, and chaotic and unpredictable, that is the end of science. That is something that has, again, been neglected and overlooked. Question, how do you explain the origin of mountains? How were they formed? And uh, how do you explain the formation of evaporite deposits and limestones? Do they not require uh, quite uh, a quiet environment uh, Sorry, I can't read the handwriting here. 
but I think I get the gist of this. The creation model presents orogeny, that is, origin of mountains, as a post-flood phenomenon in which God lifted up the great mountain ranges of the earth since the flood with the fossils, billions of them, that were deposited during the flood in stupendous masses of plastic, unconsolidated, superimposed layers. Here's the reason. If the layers had been formed through hundreds of millions of years, they would have all solidified, hardened. And therefore, an uplift would have cracked and shattered them, pulverized them. But when you look at uh, the patterns of sedimentary strata, here's what you see. You see stupendous buckling like this, or twisting like this, uh, which could not have happened unless the layers were still uh, unconsolidated and soft. Now, when it comes to evaporites and limestones, a new approach to this, by the way, even Russian geologists now acknowledge this, although their bias is non-biblical, that evaporites could not have resulted from evaporation on a uniformitarian gradual scale. Why? Because they're so enormous and so thick and so deep, there is no ocean in the world that could ever evaporate gradually that much material. Well, then where did it come from? Apparently through a catastrophic situation where huge masses of superheated magma pouring out from the crust of the earth uh, caused a rapid uh, condensation in the, what we would call in the evaporite formations of salt and so forth. In other words, it is a catastrophic product, not a uniformitarian one. Now, again, we have some very excellent articles on the details of this. And if you're interested, we'd be glad to call those to your attention. I think we'll take time for one more question, and then we'll move right into the film. Is Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 part of the first day, or did the first day begin after the creation of the earth and heaven? This is a very important question, which we call the gap theory problem. Now, Genesis 1-1 says that in the beginning God created the heaven and earth, but verse 2 says, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was in the face of the deep now did that happen millions of years later or to put it another way did genesis 1 1 happen millions of years before genesis 1 2 and the six day basic creation account the answer is no genesis 1 1 and genesis 1 2 are part of the six day creation record because grammatically the wording will not permit a gap of time. Genesis is commented on and explained by Exodus, which says that within the six days, God created heaven, earth, sea, and all that in them is. In other words, the events of Genesis 1-1 are included within the six days. And there are many important ramifications of this. If you're interested, uh, Professor Weston Fields, who is with us tonight, professor at Grace College, has written what I think is the finest book ever done on the subject of what was the world like when it was created, how was it created, called Unformed and Unfilled. We have some copies of the table out there. I recommend the book and trust that these questions have been helpful to you tonight. I'm sorry I didn't get to them all, but I will be here afterward to help to answer any further questions I can in the few minutes remaining. And right now, we will have the film, 
the world that perished. 